Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark, and this week we're going to be talking to the public health academic Marion Nestle about what we're all getting wrong about our diets. How have the food companies distorted the truth about what's on our dinner plates? First, though, I'm joined in the studio by Prospect's deputy editor, uh, fellow eater, and fellow parent, Steve <laughs> Bloomfield, to talk about That's a our, nice introduction. our diets. <laughs> So, uh, how much do you worry about junk food versus ordinary food, Steve? I am, well, obviously this is a podcast, so you can't see me, but I think it's fair to say I am more on the skinny side of things and always have been. So, I've sort of never really worried that much about uh, what I'm eating until recently, I think it's fair to say. Um, Partly, yes, um, because I'm a parent now, so you just think about it a bit more. But also, you, you know, the number of stories there have been and, and, you know, proper rigorous scientific research about uh, about what's put in our food, I think is, I think has sort of crept up the agenda a lot more. And, and yeah, and does make me worried about, you know, what it is I'm eating more so than it might have 10 years ago. I mean, I feel a little bit like, I mean, I'm fussy in some ways. I'm vegetarian, have been since I was 18. And so, you know, I've, I do have some of my own rules, but I feel that the rules people impose on their kids, I'm not sure your kids yet quite going to parties where there's great big piles of sweets and stuff. I think people worry too much um, about, um, you know, particular types of sugar. For example, like people think that chocolate's wicked and evil, uh, whereas fruit, which has also got a different type of sugar in is um, okay. And... I know fruit's got some good stuff in it as well, which isn't there in a chocolate bar, but I do wonder whether there's a lot of kind of snobbery rather than just science in what people think about what their kids are eating. There might be. I I think part of the challenge is that it's very unclear um, what's good for you and what's not a lot of the time, that a lot of the information that by law you find on packets of, of food and drink is is deliberately um, opaque. There are times where you look at things and it's actually quite hard or you'll look at something and go, oh, well, this says that, you know, you know, 
per portion. Yeah, yeah. Who knows what portion too is. bad. And then you realise, well, hang on, but how much of this is a portion? And there are some drinks you can buy uh, from uh, yeah any normal uh, sandwich retailer, and you'll think that the drink that you're drinking is a portion. Actually, you look at the small print; it turns out it's two and a half portions. Yeah. So there's a lot of. Um, uh, shall we say, trying to get away with it that happens on uh, on food and drink packaging, which then makes it very, very difficult for people to work out what's right and what's not. I think that is probably true. And I think that a large part of that is definitely the very different sort of relationship that these industries have with the government compared to, say, tobacco. With tobacco, it's worth pointing out that it took 40 years from the mass uptake of smoking in the First World War the link with lung cancer, for example, to be nailed. Um, and so one thing about diet, when we think about, I don't know, is um, eating uh, processed starch really bad for you, white flour or something, you need to follow people up over a period of years and years and years. And so there must be many of these things where we don't know, we're just guessing. That's true, yeah. But I mean, I, th- I think certainly over the last... Is it 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago that Jamie Oliver's series on on um, school dinners, school dinners uh, took place, um, which I think was one of the sort of, you know, the big moments in the last 20 odd years where uh, where diet really hit the headlines. And you had, you know, ministers and opposition leaders all saying, no, no, seriously, something must be done about this. Um, we've mm. had the start of. Uh, taxes on sugar and fizzy drinks uh, and you have this interesting issue now where Matt Hancock the health uh, the Secretary of State for Health is very very keen to to push more of these yet the man that he's supporting to become uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, seems to be opposed to them and I think what we might be seeing I mean yeah trying to guess what Boris Johnson is going to do as Prime Minister is a, is a bit of a fool's game but um, I can be slightly foolish so here goes I think we're going to see a bit of a rowing back of this, of uh, of these rules that have been introduced over the last 15, 20 years because his form of uh, odd liberalism is a sort of do what you want, say what you want liberalism. So yeah, you can say something mm. that uh, some people would consider racist and you could also uh, eat what you like and the government shouldn't tell you one way or the other uh, whether it's right or wrong. So mm. I think that this sort of path we've been going on for the last decade or so is going to fork in a different way. What happens next? I really don't know. Hey, again, just one more comparison with tobacco. I find interesting. I read within the last couple of weeks that, like, compared to the early 1990s, we've now directly flipped so that the proportion of adults that used to smoke then has swapped completely and directly with the proportion who are obese now. So, you know, it was twice as many used to smoke as were obese and now it's the other way around so something's happened and it doesn't sound great if nothing is going to be done about it but Steve finally I can't let you go without asking you about this piece that the likes of Nigella Lawson are uh, endorsing that is in the current magazine about bread yes what do you want to know about bread natural bread versus the bread most of us buy what's the difference so um Dan Hancock, uh, who is a, a writer, who, in fact, this is the first piece he's done for, for us here, has done a big essay on uh, the battle over bread. Um, so all of us pretty much eat bread. 97% of the population will, will eat bread um, during, the course of a, during the course of a month. The issue is what type of bread we eat. And there is your uh, 
artisanal uh, sourdough made simply with uh, flour, water, uh, and a bit of salt. Uh, and then there is your wrapped loaf, normally done with the Chorley Wood method, uh, which has about 13 different ingredients uh, in it and, uh, and will last on your shelf for about a week. And there's this battle between the two sides as to essentially, um, you know, which bread we're going to eat um and there's all sorts of health issues there's all sorts of class issues um and dan's essays uh dan's essay gets to the heart of it uh, i think even we, we might try and bring him on the podcast at some stage in the next few weeks yeah, to, yeah, uh, yeah. to talk about a bit more um but chew but over bread some more indeed but before that people can read uh the essay in the new issue of prospect which is out now and we'll skip over chlorinated chicken and other delights that might be in the trade deals around Brexit, because what we're going to do now is move on to our main event, which is the discussion with Marion Nessel. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So tell us a little bit about the reasoning behind unsavoury truth. You talk in your introduction about this analogy with tobacco companies and pharmaceutical companies, and no one's really done the same level of scrutiny on the food industry. Is that fair? I think that's fair to say. I, I saw it as a big gap, and I was, um, you know, as I run across this literature uh, during my reading, it just made me 
more and more distressed. Um, I think I had three reasons for writing the book. For one thing, I've been concerned about food industry influence since the early 2000s when I wrote Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health. That book uh, was inspired by my going to meetings about childhood obesity and having everyone talking about how important it was to educate mothers about how to feed their children better, as if food marketing, food industry marketing didn't exist and it was completely invisible and nobody realized that billions of dollars were being put into trying to convince people to buy products that they didn't need and weren't going to be good for them. And nobody was noticing. So that was what food politics was about. And then when I was writing Soda Politics, which came out in 2015, I kept running across research that had been funded by Coca-Cola uh, for the purpose of discrediting the idea that sugary beverages were associated in any way with obesity and type 2 diabetes. Um, and also discrediting any research to the contrary clearly trying to cast doubt on the research. And that's a standard tobacco industry strategy. It's part of the, the tobacco industry's playbook is to cast doubt on any potentially negative research. And I thought, oh, look, the food industry is doing exactly what the tobacco industry was doing. And then this article came out in the New York Times about how Coca-Cola was funding a group called the Global Energy Balance Network, which had organized in order to argue that physical activity was more important than diet and what you in, in what you eat and in obesity. And that group had just neglected to mention that they were funded by Coca-Cola. And when that became obvious, there was this big scandal about it. And a lot of reporters called me and said, what do you think of this? And they were kind of shocked that Coca-Cola would do this kind of funding. And I thought, if they're shocked, I have another book to write. I mean, you talk in the book about Coca-Cola as a case study in and of itself, but I mean, you couldn't write a book like this without talking about sugar in general. Well, I think that's such a big issue these days. Um, but what's, uh, I mean, one of the other things that happened was for a year, I collected industry sponsored studies on my website. And, you know, I, as I've said many times, I had 168 of them at the end of a year, and 156 of them had results that were favorable to the sponsor's interest, um, which is a very typical finding for industry-funded research. It almost always comes out the way the funder wanted it to. Um, and what surprised me about that was not only the number of studies that's so easy to find food industry-funded studies with favorable results that I can recognize them from the titles, um, but also how many companies are doing it. It's not just Coca-Cola. It's dozens and dozens and dozens of companies and trade associations for products who are eager to use this kind of research for marketing purposes. 
I mean, I think yeah. I should say, although the content of your book focuses on the United States, many of these these themes are international and certainly resonate here in the UK. You have these tables where you break down some of the sponsors who are funding even conferences and nutrition education events. I mean, that's something that would be quite shocking to your average consumer. Well, you would think it would be shocking, but it's actually quite normal. Um, it's normal to have nutrition conferences sponsored by food companies, and it's normal to see journal supplements on nutrition and health issues that have been sponsored by food companies, as if that sponsorship had nothing to do with what was said. Um, I go to meetings of nutrition societies in which there are food companies sponsoring sessions during the regular scientific presentations. And you know when you walk into one of these that that there's not going to be much critical thinking going on about the product that's made by these companies um, and that uh, they're really about marketing. And I think that there's something about it that's just invisible to people who are in the profession. They just don't see it. And so I wrote the book in hopes that it would at least raise questions among my colleagues. Let's talk a little bit about the effects or maybe how some of the effects of this process manifest when it comes to what the consumer in, in both senses sees. You have a couple of examples where you talk about so-called miracle foods, so blueberries and what I would call pecans, but you might pronounce pecans, the, the nuts. Yes. <laughs> Oh, yes. Actually, the, the pecans are interesting. But, yeah, I mean, they're a very good nut. I like them a lot. And um, I spent a lot of time talking to the executive director of one of the trade associations for uh, one of the states that grows pecans. And he was pretty straightforward that um, they want to sell more pecans. And one really terrific way to do that is to have research that demonstrates that people who eat pecans have lower rates of heart disease. Um, and so you can advertise pecans as a something associated with a reduced risk of heart disease, and nobody questions that very much. We love health claims. Um, and everybody loves health claims, and they work really well in selling food products. Whereas if you gave it even a moment's critical thought and think, wait a minute, if I eat three or four or a handful of pecans a day, you know, just a couple of hundred calories worth, that's going to make a difference in my health, really? When we know that health is the result of everything that you eat, drink, and do, not just one food. One food can never make that much difference. It does keep coming up again and again, though, doesn't it? I mean, we have acai berries, avocados, kind of uh, quinoa about 10 years ago. These, you may have different trends depending on where you're listening to this podcast, but the idea that one food will contain something that will transform our health. It's still so pervasive. Yes, in the States, we call them superfoods. And the object of the game is to be able to characterize your product as a superfood. And you, know, you can say, well, what's wrong with advertising blueberries, pecans, avocados, grapes, pomegranates, mangoes, anything that you can think of. What's wrong with advertising those as superfoods when they're all good for you? 
Um, and I guess the answer is nothing except it's not science, it's marketing. There's another aspect to this, though, which is a little bit broader, where you talk about the idea of the part of our health we should be most attentive to also being manipulated by food um, industry lobbying or by different groups of doctors who put forward certain concerns and others. I'm thinking of the advertisement you show, the cholesterol kills advertisements, um, where they invite you to find out the truth about eggs. And then you have marketing that comes back and goes, I oh, know eggs are back now, eggs are good again. But that idea of should it be your cholesterol, should it be how much fat you're eating, should it be how much sugar you're taking in, which which part of our physiology is at the fore also depends on who's funding what. Well, I think all of these questions, which are of great concern to large segments of the public, are greatly influenced by who's paying for the research. I think it's the first question that needs to be asked whenever you're talking about a single nutrient or a single food. Um, in the case of eggs, eggs are particularly confusing because uh, most of the of the research recently on eggs and health has come from um, the, has come from studies sponsored by the egg industry, and it's been very difficult to sort out whether these studies make sense in the light of everything else that we know about it. Um, you know, eggs are one food, and it's. I think the studies could go either way depending on who the subjects are that are being looked at if these if people are eating healthful diets and they've got and they're eating eggs they're probably going to be just fine if they're eating unhealthy diets and they're eating eggs they're probably not going to be just fine um, very very difficult to sort this out and nobody has a public interest in sorting out those kinds of questions except for the companies that are selling the products that's part of the problem there's not enough money in nutrition research to look at the kinds of questions that consumers are interested in, which don't have a whole lot of scientific um, interest, but are interested from maybe a public health standpoint. I wanted to ask you about funding, actually, because you talk about the Women's Healthy Eating and Living study that, that you were involved in, um, I believe, and how many millions of dollars it actually took to fund a large-scale rigorous study of that kind. Oh, yes, and that was 25 years ago. Uh, you know, it's much more expensive now. But that study, which was looking at uh, the effects of large amounts of fruits and vegetables on breast cancer recurrence, um, it was an extremely well-conducted trial, and unfortunately it didn't find that eating more than five servings a day of fruits and vegetables made any difference in that particular instance. But it cost $30 million to run that trial over a 14-year period, um, an enormous amount of effort. And the, uh, you know, you can't do too many of those. There, there, that kind of money just doesn't exist. And when it does, it has to be a really, really important subject. There was a recent example in the United States of a, of a study that was going to cost about $100 million to look at the effect of one drink of alcohol a day. And that study turned out to be sponsored by five alcohol companies who had essentially been promised that the study would come out and show that one drink a day reduced the risk of heart disease. They weren't going to run the trial long enough to find out whether it had alcohol in any effect on breast cancer risk. 
So they were going to exclude that uh, from the outcome. And when all of that collaboration collusion was revealed, uh, the study was stopped. Um, but that one was going to cost nearly $100 million, and the industry was putting in $67 million. And what you find as well from collating these studies and, and as you say, bringing together as many of them as you can, sort of collecting them as it were, um, they, they contradict each other based on who's funding them. Uh, they sometimes do. They don't always. The egg ones, for example, it's pretty hard to tell uh, who funds the studies because they come out either way depending on a lot of other factors. Um, but here Coca-Cola is, again, or sugar-sweetened beverages are, again, a very, very good example where there's been a study of whether sugar-sweetened beverages affect obesity and type 2 diabetes. And half the studies showed that um, sugar-sweetened beverages had no effect at all on obesity or type 2 diabetes, and all but one of those was sponsored by the beverage industry. On the other hand, the other half of the studies showed that, yes, indeed, they certainly do have an effect on obesity and type 2 diabetes, and only one of those was um, funded by the, by the industry. The rest were all independently funded. So sometimes there's a huge discrepancy, and that, that's, a, I think, one of the clearest examples of that. But it's harder to do with other foods. So what would be your advice to somebody who either is wanting to look in a more holistic way about what they're eating or who has heard a claim about, say, blueberries and what they can do for their health? Where would they go to start looking around, getting proper information? Well, I think they they have to use common sense. If a food seems like a miracle, it's probably not. Um, And that's because if you just think about it, you know that diets as a whole and how much you drink and whether you take recreational drugs and um, whether you're physically active all have an enormous influence on your health. And the idea that a handful of blueberries would make that much difference, it just doesn't make any logical sense. Um, it does make sense if you're drinking quarts or liters of sugar-sweetened beverages a day. That's um, There, I think, the evidence is much clearer. But for most dietary practices, it's the whole thing. It's whether you eat healthfully or don't eat healthfully. These days, the buzzword is ultra-processed foods. Those are the ones that should, or what we used to call junk foods, a much politer term. Um, avoiding junk foods is a really good idea. We should talk very briefly. Um, I think it would be remiss not to to not discuss USDA lo- lobbying and how regulation of food can be influenced too. Well, the USDA and the Department of Health and Human Services are in charge of dietary guidelines. And the we, in the infinite wisdom of our con- Congress, are required to produce new dietary guidelines every five years, a process that has become increasingly politicized. Uh, and the people who are on the advisory committee for this often have ties to food companies. They have to disclose those ties to the agencies, but the agencies do not disclose them publicly. Um, so the public doesn't really know what's going on there. And then in any case, the advisory committee writes a research report and the agencies change it any way they want to. Um, it's, it's a 
really highly politicized process and is getting more so every year. Um, and the lobbying on it is pretty straightforward. The trade associations and various companies file position papers with references um, in the when public comment is asked for and what they do behind the scenes. The public never knows about because you don't see it. So stick to common sense rather than um, whatever the newest odd tip is. Well, I have a few guidelines. If it's a breakthrough, no, it's not. If it's a miracle, no, it's not. If it's a superfood, no, it's not. If everything you knew about you thought you knew about nutrition is wrong, nope, not that either. Sorry. We'll be disappointed to learn that we can't actually drink infinite capacities of, of sugary drinks and be well. Uh, no, I'm just greatly in favor of common sense. And the, I mean, every, you know, you, you want to eat healthfully, eat your veggies, not too much, um, and don't eat too much junk food. There we go. Lovely common sense advice there. Thank you very much, Marion. Oh, my pleasure. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our interview with Marianne Nessel. Her book, Unsavoury Truth, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat, is out now. Rebecca Liu was this week's producer. And if you've enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and review, which really does help. We'll see you again next week. And goodbye. Goodbye. 